we're in a series, if you're new to us, uh, we're doing a series right now um, called Discipleship in the Gospels, and we're typically at our church, the way we kind of do it is we go through books of the Bible, then we'll do a couple topical series, book of the Bible. This one's a little bit different. We're going to kind of be, we're going to kind of, we're kind of surveying the four Gospels. We're not going to go line by line. That would take a decade, maybe. Um, but we're, I'm trying to show highlights in places so that you can use Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John as a part of your disciple making, right? So we've been trying to build on that. This is message four of the series. We've spoken to issues like why uh, is the word son of man used so much? Why did Jesus, um, why did Jesus sometimes say, don't tell anybody about me? And we're thinking, weren't we supposed to tell people about him? So we've been trying to do a couple things with that. Now today we're going to be looking at just the book of Matthew. We're going to be doing kind of an overview of the book of Matthew to help you understand this book. And as you read it, as you teach it, um, if we have enough time, we'll jump into Matthew 4 today and look at one passage regarding temptation. If you're looking for a title today, it's the gospel of Matthew, Jesus is King, right? Jesus is King, if you're looking for a title. Um, So we're going to just take a, a kind of a look at the book of Matthew itself. Um, and then, Lord willing, it'll be Mark next week, then Luke after the week after that. Then does anybody have a guess what the next week? John, look at that, genius, right? Okay. That was a little bit off the church answer. Usually the church answer is Jesus, Bible, right? But we kind of threw you a curveball and you had to go with John. Uh, then we're going to start doing more, picking through different passages. We've tried to do that a little bit. Um, so today, depending on the time and how I get through this, um, I plan to give you a little bit from the passage of Matthew 4. We'll just see how time goes. Um, and so uh, we're just, I'm just really in my mind and heart trying to think, how can my people take the four Gospels and use this and know how to use it and be competent with it in their hands for their own time of just Bible reading and study, but also as they disciple. Is, I think when I first became a Christian and I started reading the Bible Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I was a little confused, honestly, about it. I didn't quite understand why would I find this story and this gospel and this and this one. And at first, my only conclusion is, well, something must be wrong with this book. Because I I think, why do they have different accounts and different shades and variants to it? So it was a little little hard uh, to kind of manage until someone sat me down and talked to me specifically. Each gospel writer is trying to show a unique aspect of the Savior and has a unique thing they're trying to accomplish. So today we're, we're going to look at the Gospel of Matthew, and if you're looking for a title, it's Jesus is the King. And my big question I'll keep wondering is, is Jesus our King? Is Jesus our King? You know, it's kind of really hard to understand the whole King idea. Have you ever thought about that? How hard it is for us to understand King? For instance, Queen Elizabeth just died on September the 8th, right? And For a lot of us, that's the first time we've ever kind of seen or seen the the publication of, okay, someone of a someone of a of a kingly line, of a queenly line, they've they've died. We don't really know much about that. And then now her son, Charles, he'll be called Charles the Third, he'll take over and he'll be king. Um, now what's interesting is um, we won't get on the nuances, but the king and queen of England don't have this absolute power that in ancient times a king or queen would have over their, over their, over their kingdom, right? We, don't, we almost don't understand the king and queen thing because we don't really do that kind of thing. In fact, our country was all about overthrowing, you know, the king. We have representation. We vote. 
it's almost like in our mind we have this idea of it's optional whether you want to um, cooperate with the king or not because we elect our leaders and we will quickly not let them come back into office or we limit their office. We just have a whole different system under our democracy. I'm not, I'm not saying it's bad. I'm just saying there seems to be a disconnect, I even think in my mind, understanding what a king really is, what it means to submit to a king, what it means to be under the authority of a king, what it means to bow the knee to a king. I don't think with the rhythm of cultural life in general, we get that. I don't even think we get it with England because the king and queen don't have this kind of absolute power, although I do hear they have quite a bit of cash. (laughs) But here's the question. Is Jesus our king? Is Jesus your king? Is he my king? Have we bowed the knee to him as King Jesus? So when you come to the book of Matthew, Matthew is written with this perspective of trying to show Jesus as the king. That's the purpose of Matthew. As you walk through Matthew, that's what you see. That's what he's wanting to do. If you're so if you're a person who's taking notes and you're an outline person, uh, you could put the first kind of outline note would be the purpose of Matthew, the purpose of Matthew. And if that's point number one for you, it would be king. That's what Matthew's trying to show. King. Now, uniquely, we'll talk more about this. Matthew's trying to show him as king of the Jews, but also king of the nations. We'll look at that here in just a little bit. But Trying to show him as a, as a king. I would urge you today, if Jesus is not your king, this would be a great day for him to be your king. And it's one of these things of, it's not like a president or a congress where you get to vote on. One of these days, all of us will bow the knee. Either we'll bow the knee to him as king, as receiving grace, or we'll bow to him, but it'll be that of condemnation, right? But all will bow a knee to this king. That's why the the best thing that someone can do today is if we're not in Jesus, if Jesus is not your Lord and Savior, today's a great day because Jesus is king. Is he your king? Not your mom's king, not your dad's king. Is he your own personal king? The question is, have we repented of our sin? Realize that we have a sin nature that has condemned us against a holy God and that Jesus absorbed the wrath of God in our place. And by faith, by his finished work, have we trusted in that alone? Is Jesus our king? So that's the purpose of Matthew. Jesus is king. When you read through this book, you're going to get that idea. And that's what Matthew over and over is trying to give that flavor and that distinction and that kind of shade with his gospel. Now, point number two. Let's talk about the man named Matthew. Point number two, the name Matthew. Well, his Jewish name is Levi, but his name Matthew that you hear often, it means gift of Yahweh gift of Yahweh. What a great name, right? If you're looking for a baby name and you're wondering what should I name, man, Matthew, that's a really great name, gift of Yahweh. And this gospel, this book of Matthew is a gift from God. What's great about this book is a lot of people have come to Christ through this book. A lot of Jewish people have come to Christ through this book. It is God's gift to us, right? So not only is Matthew's name means gift of Yahweh, the book itself is a gift from God. So that's the name of the author. Date of writing. If you're looking at kind of a, um, you're doing the point outline, number three would be the date of writing. Now, I know you're all fascinated by this idea. But you know, there's some debate about when this was written somewhat, right? Some would, some say that the book of Mark was written first, then Matthew, then Luke, then John. 
Everybody agrees that John was written last. Most everybody agrees that Luke was written third. There's a lot of debate over was Matthew or Mark written, um, you know, which one was written first. Uh, Some would say that Mark was written first and he had Peter's account. He had Peter's account and and Mark is writing from mainly Peter's account and that Matthew comes after. Um, But there's also many that would say Matthew was written first. I don't think it really matters because you can see some unique perspectives. Matthew and Mark, if you read their books, right? Matthew has stuff that Mark doesn't have in it. It's not that Mark's leaving things out, but what tells me uh, if something is true and accurate, they're not going to plagiarize each other completely. Although there are very similarities in stories, Matthew, actually, if you look at the first three chapters, Matthew has stuff in it that Mark doesn't. Mark jumps right into John the Baptist and the ministry of Jesus. Matthew gives us a little bit more about his genealogy, his birth, his flight from Herod, his parents bringing him back back into Nazareth. So it, it, it's a little bit different from each other. The date of writing, somewhere around 60 A.D., give or take, somewhere around 60 A.D. is when this book was written. Everybody would agree that it wasn't written before 70 A.D., because in 70 A.D., that's when the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed. When you read Matthew 24, you find that 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 temple must have still been there, and there's still a prophecy of its future destruction. So somewhere around 60 A.D. is when this gospel is written. Now, whether it was Mark first or Matthew first, I don't think it really matters, but what really matters is, is Jesus your king? Is he your king? The book of Matthew is saying Jesus is king. He's saying to Jewish people he's king. He's saying to everybody he is king. The question is, is he your king? Is he my king? And not this thing where I'm telling you, it, it just this week in my study, I was just thinking to myself, I really don't think I get the concept of king because I don't live in this kind of monarch society. You know, I'm... You know, I'm going to vote for who I'm going to vote who's going to be my leader. I'm going to vote for whom I'm going to vote who's going to occupy congressional seats. I'm going to, if I don't like what they have to say, I'm going to pick someone else. You don't get to do that with Jesus. It was interesting. I think even as Christians, sometimes we think that where we'll go, Jesus is my king. And then Jesus, you're going to see later, he gives a sermon on the mount, which is kind of basically, if I am your king, this is how people live when I am their king, right? Well, we often don't do that, don't we? There's things that we don't like about Jesus, things about what Jesus has said that we don't really like. That's why sometimes I think we don't really understand what a, what a king is. A king has absolute rule. A king you don't get to refuse. A king has absolute control. You don't get to tell a king no. You don't get to buck up against a king. You obey a king. So the question is, is Jesus our king? You know, when I became a follower of Jesus, I became a follower of Jesus at 16 years of age. I first was exposed to the gospel as far as systematically at age 15, leading up to life. Before that, man, I had gospel tracts. Y'all know the story where I had gospel tracts I kind of collected through the years. We kind of went to church on Easter, but that was kind of where it was. And then about 15 is when we started really attending church like normal and and kind of winning and went go went consistently. I started reading the book of Romans. And right as I kind of got to age 16, somewhere in there is when I became a follower of Jesus. who was just reading the book of Romans. I can remember on my parents' tan couch, like all of a sudden it's like a light bulb moment where I understood, wait a minute, I deserve the wrath of God. 
and Jesus is my substitute. It was like just a light bulb moment. Then that was where I would describe I became a follower of Jesus. That's where I would describe that Jesus became my king. Now, what's interesting is no one told me this one aspect I'm about to tell you, but it's like I just knew it. So when that happened, there was something inside me that I knew this idea of Nick. Or actually, back then it was Bubba, right? That's my nickname, Bubba, right? I, I want to get a doctorate someday just so I can be called Dr. Bubba. That would just be really cool. But I remember, it's like I knew inside of my soul that I no longer made the rules for my life anymore. It wasn't my prerogative anymore. That I now belong... But as my Savior, He is my Lord. As my Lord, He is my King. I don't get to decide about life anymore. It's underneath His control. He's my King. You know, I think one of the greatest tests you could do is, and, and, and bless God, I love that in our evangelical culture, we have made accessibility to the gospel message like an easy thing in the sense of Jesus did the work by faith through grace you come to trust in that. I love that. But the flip side I find that people have done is they've presumed on God's grace and thought just because I said some religious wording of Jesus be my savior that I'm good and Jesus doesn't, isn't my king. And I would say if Jesus isn't king, then he's not your savior. Let me do this again. If Jesus is not your king, then he is not your what? You can't divorce those two things from each other. I'll give you an example. There was a guy named Johnny Oates. You know Johnny Oates? He was the manager for the Rangers, you know, back when they won, you know, three World Series in a row. Do y'all remember that? That never happened. Okay, but <laughs> I was just seeing if y'all kind of, you know, knew it. I think they've won once in their life, you know. Johnny Oates, one time, he was a Christian. Uh, this is in the late 90s. He is the manager of the Texas Rangers. And so I'm in my first year of youth ministry as a youth pastor and they have this big thing in the Dallas area, the DFW area, Dallas-Fort Worth area, that you can, all the churches can come to the Ranger game, and then Johnny Oates will meet with you and have kind of like a little devotional because he knew the Lord and, and, and he could be an encouragement. So this was really great. You got kind of a, you got kind of special access to the stadium. You got to see extra kind of batting practice kind of work. Then Johnny Oates would come out and speak to everybody. So I don't remember how many youth were there, but my youth department was there. And I can remember Johnny Oates speaking. Um, he senses is went to be with the Lord. And I believe the man is a genuine follower of Jesus. I just believe his theology was off. But he, he had said something. He said, and he had this red bat on his shoulders. He was talking to us. And Johnny Oates said, you know, I know some of y'all may disagree with my theology. But he said, I, I came to, Jesus became my savior somewhere in my teen years. And then he became my Lord much later in life. Now, I can remember that moment thinking, that makes sense, God. Like, there's so many people that have said yes to Jesus, but they live like hell. This makes sense to me. So I remember, like, in that moment, I was like, finally, this makes sense. Because, to be honest with you, at that point in life, I'd only been a Christian just a little over, what, probably four years at that point. And I had saw this great disparity between those that said they belonged to Jesus as Savior, but they didn't live like he was Lord. And I was kind of wondering... Why is there such a disconnect between these two? Y'all getting this? You understanding this? I, I couldn't understand. So when Johnny Oates gave that explanation, in my mind, I was like, perfect example, I get it. And so, man, I had a lot of confidence. I was like, I'm going to stop stressing about 
youth and people who say yes to Jesus but live like hell, I'm just going to assume that at some later point he'll be their Lord, he'll be their king. And, and here's the one flaw in that whole thing when I had that. It was a great thought, and it really helped to tie things up in my life. It made ministry, I think, a little bit more simpler. But then I did one thing, one thing that blew that whole entire thing up. What do you think I did? I read the Bible. I mean, go ahead and have a thought about what you think about life, but don't read your Bible because <laughs> God's going to bust that one wide open. The interesting thing is, reading the scriptures, I could not find that idea that Jesus can be your Savior and not your Lord, that this concept actually goes together. If he is your Savior, then he is your Lord. So I can remember even when I came to faith, there was this idea like, he's my Lord, he's my King. Matthew's writing this book, letting you know Jesus is the King. Is he your King? I'm not saying just because you prayed a prayer at 18 does not mean he's your king. And if he's your king, he's your savior. But those two aren't divorced from each other. You're not saved by works, but I will tell you, the works of our life are a great indication. Is there an authenticity to our faith in Jesus as savior? I'm not saying and calling perfection, but what I am saying is, is there a life of repentance and faith that you can see the good fruits of the spirit in your life that would bear fruit and evidence that Jesus is your Savior. I don't think I'm talking about works. I'm just saying there, there'll be evidence. If a tree's good, the fruit's going to be what? If a tree's bad, the fruit's going to be, what's the fruit of our life? Well, I would tell you. You'll know, you'll know if Jesus is king or not. If Jesus is not king, then I would encourage one to take a look at, is he the Savior of your life? Have you, trust, have you trusted in him and him alone that your sins have been forgiven by his precious shed blood. Now, if you're looking for an outline point once again, let me go to Matthew, um, the profession of Matthew, point number four. The profession, what Matthew did for living. Matthew probably has the job that no one tells anybody about. Matthew was a tax collector. Have you ever noticed that we must have an IRS, but I just don't meet many people who work for the IRS, Right? It's just like no one wants to tell you they work for the IRS. It seems like uh, an unsavory business. It, are y'all getting me on this? Do you understand this? I, I, I'm sure maybe someone in our church works for the IRS, and maybe we just don't know it because they don't want to tell us, right? We don't, they, don't, they don't want us to come up to them and ask them questions. I don't know. But I do know this. Matthew, he was an eyewitness to Jesus' life. So this is an eyewitness account. But he also, before Jesus called him as a disciple, he was a tax collector. And just so you know, tax collectors were not liked. They were an unsavory bunch. They were a, a crooked bunch. How bad was, did a Jewish person view a tax collector? Look in Matthew at chapter 18. This is a verse that's often that we use, kind of a main text to kind of guide um, a church just through the process of redemptive discipline in the middle of chapter 18 and notice that when you get to the point of actually doing redemptive discipline in verse 17 of Matthew 18 it says that that person that church member if they that Christian if they refuse to listen to the church to them tell it to the church and if he refuses even to listen to the church let him be to you as a Gentile and a what tax collector that's not a good thing right no one likes the tax collector 
The tax collectors, often the way things worked is you kind of went into um, kind of an auction status and you would buy the rights to collect taxes for Rome. But on top of that, you were allowed to charge what you wanted above that certain percentage. So once you had rights to a jurisdiction to charge taxes, once you passed on the Rome what you needed to pass on, you could do what else? You could kind of charge, you know, the opportunists could do what they wanted to do. That didn't make you a very popular person among Jewish people. It was really interesting. He's writing this book. The writer, Matthew, is writing this book to show that Jesus is king, even king of the Jews. Here's where it's interesting. Why would God use a man who used to be a tax collector to write a gospel to convince Jewish people of a Jewish Messiah when the most crooked snake of a person is what the average Jewish person would think about this guy? Well, the reason is, is because God does not work according to our timetable. If you ever want more evidence to know, is the Bible real? If you were making this book up, you would not choose a former tax collector to write a book that's trying to show to Jewish people, first and primarily, that Jesus is king of the Jews. You wouldn't do it. You wouldn't use someone who's a tax collector. Go over to Matthew chapter 9. We're looking at the profession of Matthew. You wouldn't use this guy. It was even interesting when you look in chapter 9, verse 9, you get Matthew chronicles the calling of his calling to the Lord. It says in Matthew 9, 9, And as Jesus went on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting in the tax office, and he said to him, Follow me. And he stood up and followed him. You know, it's interesting. Matthew chronicles that he was sitting in the tax office. Matthew chronicles here what he is, right? Which is very interesting. A gospel writer who's writing first to a Jewish audience, is admitting the kind, the kind of profession he did. A kind of profession that, look in verse 10. You might wonder, well, Matthew was a benevolent tax collector. Was he? Because after that, you can see that this guy must have had a pretty spacious house. He must have had a very generous pocketbook. Because if you look after verse 9, it says, Then it happened that as Jesus was reclining at the table in the house, he's at Matthew's house, Many tax collectors and sinners came and were dining with Jesus and his disciples. Oh, Matthew's got lots of friends. He's got lots of tax collecting friends. I'm more than likely confident that Matthew was a guy that was taking full advantage of his rights and privileges as a tax collector. He seems to have a pretty good account that he can actually provide such a kind of banqueting feast. But I love verse 11. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why is your teacher eating with tax collectors and sinners. And when Jesus heard this, he said, it's not those that are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. And what's interesting is Jesus is there giving the gospel to other tax collectors and sinners because Matthew had become convinced that Jesus was the king and he wanted to get other people to the king. So this Matthew guy, his profession is a tax collector, very unsavory. And here's the great thing. That's not what he is anymore. He can write this knowing he's not an unsavory tax collector anymore. He's actually something different. He's a disciple. And why? Because Jesus is his king. When Jesus is your king, he makes you a different person. What's great about a king is, like, for instance, our president, our Congress, our, our whole system of government, they can't make a declaration of what you are. But a king can. A king can take you from one day to being a servant to being the highest in the kingdom. And Jesus, by his own work on the cross, took us from someone who deserved the wrath of God to someone that can be a son of God. 
is Jesus your king? The whole book of Matthew is trying to get to this idea, is Jesus your king? So much so is Jesus king and the ability to take someone from a servant to a son that Matthew, probably one of the most sleazy professions, now is totally something different. In fact, God is now having Matthew write a book for Jewish people as a totally different person. You know, sometimes people think, I can only come to Jesus if I have all my sins taken care of. Well, that's not a really good way to think, right? You come to Jesus, then he'll take care of your sin. There used to be this idea that people think you had to clean yourself up and get right, but come to Jesus and he'll make you right. Go to number, uh, if you're looking at a point, if you're looking for points, you can go to point number six. When you look at the book of Matthew, it has more quotations from Old Testament texts than Luke, than Mark, than John. A lot of quotations, right? And here's the reason why. Mark, uh, Matthew is trying to get first that Jesus is king of the Jews. And so he's using the Jewish scriptures to over and over point that this is a Jewish Messiah. He's trying to convince by the proofs of the Old Testament. So when you read Matthew, why the reason you see him talk so much about so it could be fulfilled, that the scriptures say this. You'll see that more in Matthew than in Mark and Luke and John because Matthew is trying to point out to this Jewish audience these Jewish scriptures they are speaking about Jesus. When you look in Matthew chapter 2 and 3, you see that Matthew does a whole lot of quoting. This is from the Old Testament scriptures, over and over. So, when you look at the book of Matthew, Matthew is trying to get across that he's the king, he's the king of the Jews, he's quoting from Old Testament texts of which Jewish people would know. Take your Bible and let me show you just one. There's many. As you go through the book of Matthew, this is why you see so many quotations. And I want to read this to you because it's going to lead me to my next point, point number six. Look in Matthew chapter 4 and look in verse 12. Matthew chapter 4 and verse 12. Remember, Matthew's writing that Jesus is king of the Jews. Now, in a minute, you're going to see that Matthew's gospel also tries to put across the idea that he's not only king of the Jews, but he's king of the nations. He's king of all. He's not just for the Jewish people. He's for everybody. Now go to Matthew 4 in verse 12. And Matthew makes a point of bringing up, a, a, bringing up an Old Testament text from Isaiah chapter 9 verse 1 through 2 as a fulfillment. In Matthew chapter 4 verse 12, here's what it says. Now when Jesus heard that John had been taken into custody, he departed unto Galilee. That was where he did most of his ministry. And leaving Nazareth, he came and lived in Capernaum. Capernaum is right off the Sea of Galilee, which is by the sea in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali, in order that what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet would be fulfilled, saying, The land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of Gentiles, the people were sitting in darkness and saw great light, and those who were sitting in the dark, and the shadow of death upon them, a light dawned. Matthew is trying to show that Jesus is not only the king of the Jews, but you already start to see early on in his gospel, he says, but he's not just the king of the Jews. He's the king of the Gentiles as well. He's the king of all. The fact that if Jesus was just the king of the Jews, guess where his ministry base would have been for this whole time, most of his life, most of his ministry time. It would have been in the region of Judea, in the city of Jerusalem, if he was only going to Jews. But no, he's in Galilee, what is which is much more international. It has Jews and Gentiles. And 
Matthew is trying to point out, hey, I want you to understand this Jesus is king of the Jews. This Jesus, he is the Messiah, but he's not just a Jewish Messiah. He's a Messiah for the nations. He's a Messiah for all. You see these kind of quotations all through the book of Matthew. He's trying to show that he's king. The question is, is he your king? Is he your king? If he is our king, we'll see a reflection of that in our life. So question, are you forgiving people from the heart when they sin against you? Or are you saying, well, I forgive them when I feel like it? Then my next question is, is Jesus your king? Are are we displaying sinful anger because we think it's our right? Then I would go, man, Jesus talks about actually forgiving anger as Jesus has forgiven you. Is Jesus your king? We think these ideas of, I will, I will, I will live my life how I want to live it. Then I would go, is Jesus your king? Is Jesus your king? The whole book of Matthew is trying to show that Jesus is the king. Not only Jewish king, but the king of all. Now go over to Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. I'll show you this. Matthew opens up the gospel, his gospel account, and he gives a genealogy of Jesus. Anybody fans of genealogy? Has anybody ever memorized we got one person right? This is usually the part that we all skip over, right? It's thinking like, man, what? like all these names. Why do we have all these names? Well, we have all those names for a point and a reason. Matthew's trying to show Jesus as the king of the Jews who's also the king of the Gentiles. If you were Jewish, you probably were a little bit surprised by this. You thought Jesus was just, you know, you thought when the Messiah would come, he would just really be for the Jewish people. You more than likely as a Jewish person in first century monotheistic Israel, you probably thought the Messiah would come and just overthrow the political Rome, but you weren't looking for the whole package more than likely. Matthew writes this and he's letting them know that Jesus is that prophesied king of the Jews, but he's much more. But you find in Matthew 1, there's a genealogy, and the genealogy that he traces is a genealogy from Jesus to David and from David to Abraham. He's trying to show that he is the Jewish Messiah, but he doesn't leave it there. If you look in chapter 1, verse 1, he says, the book of genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David and the son of Abraham. And then you find him following this kind of template. Go to chapter 1, verse 17. He says, therefore, all generations from Adam to David were 14, from David to Babylon, 14, and from Babylon to Christ, 14. So he's showing he is a Jewish king just to open up this book. But he doesn't end there. So he starts in chapter 1, verse 1, letting you know this is a very Jewish king. But now go to the very end of Matthew. Look how he ends the book of Matthew. And by the way, all through the book of Matthew, you see Jesus going not only to Jewish people, but Gentile people. You remember the story when he goes up into the northwest of uh, Palestine and he says to the Syrophoenician woman, remember, um, she, she wants to be healed and he says, you know, you can't, you, can't give, you can't give this bread to dogs. And she said, yeah, but the dogs eat the crumbs for the master's table, right? Um, that she wasn't a Jewish person. She's a Gentile. Jesus says for all. Now go to verse 16, Matthew 28, verse 16. But the 11 disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated. He's resurrected, right? He's, um, he hasn't ascended yet, but he's resurrected. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. I got it all. I am completely the king. 
all authority, heaven and earth. All authority, right? That's what a king has is all authority. He's not just a Jewish king. He's the king of all. He has all authority. Just a side note. There's this idea that is going around. It's been going around for a while. That you can only give the gospel to somebody if you've earned the right to tell them about the gospel. And then I would say, you can believe that if you believe he's not the king. If you believe he's the king, then it doesn't matter. There's no, you don't have to earn a right to tell someone about the good news of Jesus. Jesus earned the right himself by his own kingship. Look in this verse of verse 18. He says, all what? Authority. We declare the gospel not because someone gives us permission. We declare the gospel because he's the king. He has all the authority and he has entrusted to us this responsibility to do it. Look what he, go to verse 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all the Jewish nations. Is that what it says? He says all nations, all ethnicities. Now this may seem small, but when you are a first century, 60 AD, monotheistic Jew, reading this text and going, wait a minute, he opened up with he's the Jewish son of David, Abraham, you're tracking with it. Then you start to kind of see what happens as he goes through it. And you're like, man, what? Man, he's, he's focusing on Jesus, you know, doing ministry in Galilee. Man, that's, that's kind of a, that's the nations. That's the, that's the nations right there. And then you get to the very end. How you end something is a true indicator of what, what you really think about something. So Matthew ends the whole gospel with, Go therefore make disciples of all nations. Jesus is the king not only of the Jews, but the nations. You baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. You, we teach them to keep all that I've commanded you. Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. By the way, his authority, let me just tell me, this: is this true or false? It says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Go, therefore, make disciples of the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So we have salvation, baptism, right? Become a disciple. Does that mean that's as far as Jesus' authority goes? Is that where his authority stops? You wait, wait a minute. Are you trying to tell me that Jesus is allowed to do more than save somebody, do more than baptize, see him baptized, that Jesus' authority extends even to the idea of this is what society and life, this is how church works, how marriage works, how society works. Are you, this is how child raising looks like. Are you telling me that Jesus is saying, I have authority that goes even past the salvation aspect, past the beginning principles of discipleship? Are you telling me that it goes that far? Yeah, that's the king. Notice in verse 20, teaching them to keep all that I have commanded you. But oh, I'm with you even to the end of the age. People say all the time, well, I, I don't want your Jesus talk. Well, Jesus is king. I mean, like, we, we have every right to actually display what the king has actually said. He's the king. He decides it all. It's his prerogative. So Matthew even bookends this book. He's the king of the Jews, but in the end, he's the king of the nations. The biggest thing I think we could answer today is, is he your king? Is he your king? Is he your king? The most important thing we'll ever answer in life is Jesus, your Lord and Savior. At 16, that got answered for me. And I praise God that that got answered for me then. 
In fact, I'll tell you that the one thing that Satan and your own flesh would probably want to tell you is wait. That, I think that was the, the biggest lie early on in Christianity for me learning about the Lord was if God is calling you to salvation, if the Holy Spirit is pricking at your heart, if you are convicted that, you're, that you are in cosmic rebellion against the God of heaven, if you have become convinced that you are a breaker of God's commands, if you have become convinced that you are a liar, that you are an adulterer, that you are a murderer, that you have dishonored your mother and father, that you have worshipped idols, if you've become convinced of that, the one thing that a lot of times we'll tell ourselves is, I'll wait for a later moment for Jesus to be my Lord and King, to be my Savior. I'll wait for that commitment. And I would tell you, that's actually not what God wants you. He is the King, and if He has brought that to you, He means for you to come to you, to come to Him. He doesn't want you to wait on that to a convenient time. You don't wait to obey a King. When a King gives an order, you obey in that time. Now, What's interesting is, turn over to Matthew chapter 3, verse 2, and this is our last point. This is point number 8. Something happens when you start reading the book of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You discover some really interesting things. Matthew chapter 3, verse 2. Here's John the Baptist, right? John the Baptist. By the way, early on in my, like, taking Bible college, I went to a fundamental independent Baptist Bible college it was a King James only, you know, if uh, Jesus, you know, spoke King James. And it was a, it was a, you know, very, you know. And, and I remember even them teaching that John the Baptist was a Baptist. Therefore, Baptist is the first church. That's a true church. If you want to be a true church, put Baptist on it, right? So, I mean, I remember like being taught these kind of things. Like, and I, I remember at first just swallowing it. But then I did something you shouldn't do if you want to know what's right. What do you think I did? I read my Bible, right? And that was just ended up being the traditions of men. But Matthew chapter 3, verse 2, John the Baptist says something about the ministry of Jesus and preparing the way. He says in chapter 3, verse 2, repent for the kingdom of what? Heaven is at hand. Now turn over to Matthew chapter 5. I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 4. In verse 17, Jesus had just resisted Satan in the wilderness in Matthew 4. He's now starting his public ministry. Jesus comes on the scene in chapter 4, verse 17. And it says, from that time, Jesus began to preach and say, repent for the kingdom of what? Heaven is at hand. Now, it's interesting. If you've ever read Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, you've probably noticed Matthew uses kingdom of heaven a lot. A lot. A couple times he uses kingdom of God. I can think of one time. There might have been a second time, but just thinking. I know there's at least one time. Matthew uses the phrase kingdom of God. Now, when you go to Mark and Luke and John, you'll see the kingdom of God used. Not near to the extent of kingdom of heaven, but Matthew uses kingdom of heaven a lot. Have you ever noticed that before? How he uses kingdom of heaven. Matthew uses that phrase kingdom of heaven. And you might be wondering, like, why doesn't Mark do that? Mark says kingdom of God. Why doesn't Mark use kingdom of heaven? Now remember, Matthew is trying to show that he's king, right? He's the Jewish king, right? He's not only the Jewish king, but he's the king of the nations. He's the kingdom of heaven. He is the king of all. Heaven and earth, as he ends it. All authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Now why would Matthew do that? I'm glad you asked that question. 
Hold your place there and go over to Daniel chapter 2. Daniel chapter 2. If you haven't ever read much of the Old Testament, you're kind of thinking to yourself, hey, okay, I want to read the Old Testament, but I just want to read something that's kind of fascinating. Read the book of Daniel, right? It's, it's, man, it's a, it, it'll fascinate you just from the very get-go. It, it, it gets a little more complicated the further you get into it, but man, those first couple of chapters are kind of, it's, it's easy, it's easy to reach if this is your first reading of any Old Testament book. So in Daniel chapter 2, here's Daniel, he's in exile He's in Babylonian captivity. The Babylonian king has a dream. He wants, he wants it to be interpreted, but he's telling all his wise people, you're going to have to tell me the dream, what it is, and then you can interpret it because I don't want you to lie to me. I'm, so I'm not going to tell you the dream. No one can do it. It's a bad thing. Daniel, God has revealed it to Daniel. Daniel tells the king what his dream was and actually gives the interpretation. Now, the interesting thing is, why would Matthew keep saying, kingdom of heaven because remember jesus is king of the jews he's that promised old testament king he's also the king of the nations so when matthew keeps saying this phrase kingdom of heaven kingdom of heaven kingdom of heaven you can look back to daniel 2 because a first century monotheistic jew would know daniel 2 and would see the connection of matthew trying to lay out this idea the king of heaven look in verse 31 of of daniel 2 So Daniel's now speaking to the king. He's going to interpret the the dream to the king of Babylon. He says, you, O king, were looking, and behold, there was a single great image. That image, which was large and of extraordinary splendor, was rising up in front of you, and its appearance was awesome. Just so you know, the king of Babylon has a dream, right? And it's a frightening dream. He doesn't know what it means. So he sees this image. Now he describes it. Look in verse 32. The head of the image was made of fine gold, its breast and its arms of silver, its belly and its thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. Just so you know, the, the, the head of the image of gold was actually representing the Babylonian kingdom, which is kind of comical here that he's going to interpret this for the king. He's basically saying, like, your, king's not gonna, your kingdom's not going to last. Just so you know, there's a time factor because king of Babylon, guess what? You're not the true king. But nonetheless, let's keep going. Verse 34. He says, you continued, looking, um, you continued looking until a stone was cut out without hands. Anybody have an idea who that might be? Jesus, right? Oh, there you go. If it's, it's either Jesus or Bible. And he struck the image on the feet of iron and clay and crushed them. And the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, the gold were crushed all at the same time. It became like chafe from the summer threshing floor and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them was found then he says but the stone that struck the image became a great what mountain and filled the whole earth he said hey this stone is going to become a kingdom it's going to fill everything the kingdom of heaven now he says in verse 36 this was the dream now we say its interpretation before the king you O king are the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the strength, and the glory. But it was borrowed, just so we all know. Verse 38. And whenever the sons of men inhabit or beasts of the field or the birds of the sky, he has given them into your hand and has made you rule with power over them. You are the head of gold. But after you, there will arise another kingdom inferior to you than another kingdom of bronze, which will rule with power over the earth. 
Then there will be a fourth kingdom, as strong as iron, insomuch as iron crushes and shatters all things. So like iron that breaks in pieces, it will crush and break all in pieces. Now in that you saw the feet and the toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron. It will be a divided kingdom, but it will have in it the toughness of iron, insomuch as you saw the iron mixed with common clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of clay, so some of the kingdom will be strong and part of it will be brittle. And in that you saw the iron mixed with common clay, then you will combine, then, then will combine the other in the seed of men, but they will not cling to another, even as the iron does not combine with clay. Just so you know, he's basically saying, all these kingdoms, your kingdom and the kingdoms after you, will all be destroyed by this rock cut out without a hand that will basically, that will turn this into a mountain and the kingdom of heaven will come. Now, go into verse 44 and 45. This is where I think, while Matthew is calling him the kingdom of heaven, is referring to the kingdom of heaven. Verse 44. And in those days, and in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will cause the kingdom to rise up which will never be destroyed. And that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it will itself stand, what? Forever. I think Matthew's referring to this idea that they would have known that there is coming a kingdom, and this Messiah's kingdom will never be crushed. It will be the crusher. And when Matthew's writing, he's letting them know That kingdom has come. When John the Baptist comes on the scene, he's saying that kingdom has come. When Jesus comes on the scene and does his his earthly ministry, he's saying that kingdom has come. I am that kingdom. Verse 45. He says, insomuch that you saw a stone that was cut out of the mountain without hands. That tells you that this is Jesus. And that it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, the gold. The great God has made known to the king that will happen in the future so the dream is certain its interpretation is trustworthy so why does matthew over and over say the kingdom of heaven because he's thinking back to daniel 2 that any first century monotheistic jew would have known this text but when matthew comes in and says he is the king of heaven he's saying he is the king that is cut out without a man's hand that will crush all other kingdoms all other systems And it will be a mountain that no one will overcome it. No one will thwart his kingdom. So the question is this. Is he your king? Because his kingdom is here. His kingdom is coming. His kingdom will not be overthrown. We may get worried that people think of different ideas than what King Jesus has. And we may get upset when laws and things get passed. But in the end, no one is going to put down this kingdom. He's the king of heaven. Is he your king? Would you pray with me? Would you stand to your feet? We're going to sing to the Lord. And would you pray with me? Is he your king? Has you submitted to him as your king? Have you bowed to him as your king? Is he Lord of your life? Is he the ruler of our lives? Father, maybe there's someone here who's never trusted Jesus. Maybe there's someone who has been lying to themselves. Deceiving themselves letting some words that they said at some point in life that have been completely divorced from Jesus being Lord and King. Lord, thank you that 2,000 years ago you went to a cross. You gave us unmistakable evidence by your death, burial, and resurrection and ascending 
to the throne that you are the king. We're going to take communion here later. Celebrating that you're king. I pray there's someone here, that there's someone here who cannot take communion because you're not their king. This would be their day to bow the knee. Bring them to repentance. Bring them to faith. Holy Spirit, only you can convict them of sin. Before it's eternally too late, may this be their day. We're going to bow. We're all going to bow a knee. I ask that those that we could bow the knee now and receive mercy and grace. Would you let this happen? And for the rest of God's people, may we read the book of Matthew with this idea that you are the king and we have no right to decide how life is going to be lived. You've decided it for us. Let us drink deeply and love you even more. And God's people said, Amen.